0: All right, we're going to be in Psalm 42 today. I think it should be on the screen, but uh, you can read along with me. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from the Mount of Mizar, deep calls to deep at Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Why they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Daniel Welker. I've been a—wasn't me, I promise. I've been attending here at Believer's Church for about four years now, and I've been a member for about two of those years. I kind of lost track. Um. But uh, I'm going to be preaching today over Psalm 42, so we're taking a little bit of a break from our minor prophets, uh, and I'm just really excited to be here, um, although I-, I feel like I should mention there's a lot of Daniels here at Believer's Church. Um, so there's, you know, Pastor Dan Bourne, and there's Elder Daniel Miller, and there's Deacon Dan Ware, and I like to think that I complete the list as a, sort of the untitled Dan here. <laughs> um, so we are going to go through Psalm 42, and I'm a teacher, I teach sixth grade, so if, I feel like I'm talking down to you. Just know that that's my kind of day-to-day here. And so as a teacher, what I like to do is I like to kind of lay out where we're going to be going today. Uh, what we're gonna be walking through, what it's gonna be looking like, and then we'll get into uh, the text itself. So I'm gonna begin by just a a couple of notes on Psalm 42, uh, specifically and Psalms in general, which didn't really fit into the text, they don't have much to do with it, but I thought they were interesting, maybe you will too. Uh, And then after that, we'll get into the text itself. I, I pulled apart three themes here, and when I say themes, I kind of think of that in a musical sense, like this dominant idea, which is sort of emerging above the rest of the noise here. Um, and so if you're someone who likes to write things down, at some point there will be a slide for that uh, when we get there. Um, but if you would, go ahead and join me in prayer, uh, and we'll go ahead and jump right in. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our ability to gather here today, and, and thank you for the privilege that I have to teach through this text this morning. Help it to be nourishment to those who listen. Help it to be something that's encouraging and instructive. Teach us to find peace and satisfaction in you, God. As we go through this text, as we, as we follow the lamentations of the psalmist, as he is upset and complaining, help us to see how his honesty enables, us to, enables him to have greater faithfulness. Thank you for loving us, God, despite our insufficiency and our complaints. Amen. So I want to begin with that brief note, just some things that didn't really fit in, but I thought were kind of interesting. So Psalm 42 is a song of lament. in case you didn't pick that up just from reading through it. He's a little bit unhappy going through there. Um, laments do have a structure to them. I'm not going to call those out, so if that's something you're interested in, you might look up what's the structure of a lament. It's pretty interesting, but it's not going to relate a whole lot to what I have to say um psalm forty two is the first psalm of the second book. The psalms are split up into five books. and I'll be totally honest uh, with the resources I had, I didn't really find a good reason for what that was. Maybe some of you know. Um, but uh, but I, I do think it's interesting that psalm forty two is the first psalm of that second book because um, something that goes at the start is something which maybe brings a little more emphasis, something which is maybe a little more representative of the ideas there. And so I think maybe psalm forty two is something that is is a big idea throughout. This, this section of the Psalms. Uh, and it's also the first Psalms to be listed by the sons of Korah. And I wanna take a little detour here just for a second because I thought the sons of Korah were really interesting. I've, I've heard, come across that name in reading through the Psalms before. And I always thought it's just one of those things like it's there and we don't really have a context for it but it, it's in the Bible and cause it was, you know, the Bible's a real book, real people lived and and did these events and wrote these things, Um, but it turns out we actually do know stuff about Korah. He appears in Numbers 16, all the way back in the time of Moses, um, as the leader of a spiritual rebellion against against Moses' leadership here. Um, And God judges Korah and, and those who were with him extremely harshly, or it seems to be that way at least, like the earth opens up and swallows them whole and they're never heard from again. And maybe that's just fancy words for an earthquake, maybe they were applying poetic imagery, I don't know. But either way, this is a pretty severe punishment because Korah is not just rebelling against Moses' authority, he's rebelling against God who appointed Moses there. And so it's interesting that the sons of Korah, so Korah was swallowed up, never to be seen from again, but his sons survived and and they were really good at naming themselves, so they called themselves the Korahites. Um, and, and they, by the time we get to the kings with David and Solomon and all the rest, they were known as uh, elite warriors in the army. They were known as temple servants, devoted temple servants, and they were also known as some of the greatest poets and songwriters of the king's kingdom. And so I point this all out because I think they're one spot of evidence in the Old Testament where God does show judgment to a few generations, but he shows faithfulness to a thousand We can focus on Korah here and say, wow, he got it pretty bad. And maybe so. But we can look at the sons of Korah thousands of years later and say, God is faithful to those who love him and serve him. And that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but I thought it was really encouraging, so there you go. (laughs) So now we're going to get into the text itself, the three main themes of Psalm 42. And I believe there should be a slide for that um, right down there at the bottom. Maybe it's there, maybe it's not. I'll read it out loud even if it's not. So the three main themes of Psalm 42, we're going to walk with the psalmist through these uh, sort of acts as he goes through them. He's going to begin with an honest, prayerful look at the difficulties of life. Things are going to be tough for him. He's going to have some struggles. And he's going to complain. And as this is in the Bible and this is something that we can learn from and something that we're instructed to learn from, we're going to see that his complaints are actually echoes of faithfulness. We're going to see why that is. The second theme here is what we should do when God does not readily act or speak or provide comfort to us. If you were listening as we read through the psalm, as Austin read for us, you might notice that God does not take an active role that we can see. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't provide comfort. He doesn't smite down the enemies of the psalmist here. He doesn't do much of it all that we can see. And sometimes that's us, and we're going to need to know how to deal with that. And then our third theme, which is going to take us just a little bit past the psalm, actually, because I think we can do that as Christians. We can look ahead of what was written here, um, is learning how to trust in the care and ministrations of Christ, even when he feels distant, because sometimes he will, and we need to know how to deal with that. So let's go ahead and get into that first theme. We're taking an honest, prayerful look at the difficulties of life while remaining faithful. So the psalmist here begins by characterizing himself and his neediness as this tired, panting deer. And I teach just a little bit south of here. And if I say deer, my students will pull out shotguns and crossbows from under their desk. They recognize that deer are a prey animal, right? This is not a flattering comparison that he's making himself to here. And it's not just any old deer. It's a, a panting, thirsty deer. And what does this imagery suggest to us? Well, we don't know for sure sure what he intended, but we can probably guess that this deer is coming off of a chase, not just a run for fun. He's not going out for a jog around the block. He's being chased, probably by a lion who wants to eat him. So the psalmist here is saying that he is in desperate straits. Things are chasing him. He's running. And why is he panting if, well, he should just stop by the water fountain, right? Well, probably not, right? Maybe he's, he's driven out into the wilderness, far from the streams and the sources of water that he would have available to him. So not only has he been driven out, not only has he been pursued by his enemies, but he's also in a situation where he can't get the nourishment that he needs. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He ends with the question here, when shall I come and appear before God? By asking that question, when shall I appear before God, he reveals that he hasn't been in the presence of God for some time. It's been a little while. If I were to stand up here and say, when, when shall I hang out with Dion? When again shall I see Dion? He would say, dude, chill out. I'm probably going to take a nap on your couch this afternoon. You're going to see me for Monday night Bible study and MC is Wednesday night. Maybe we'll even have a movie night Friday. Who knows? It would be a little bit ridiculous for me to make that complaint, right? But the psalmist says, when shall I come and appear before God? He hasn't been in the presence of God. He's been cut off maybe by being driven out into that wilderness that he's in. He continues in verses three and four. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. If I were teaching this to my sixth graders, I might ask them a silly question. I like asking silly questions. I might ask them, do tears make a nutritious meal for us? I think the answer is no, they don't and i don't think that's necessarily what the psalmist intends by using this language here but i think we can take away this idea that he doesn't have the things that he needs he doesn't have his nutritious meal he doesn't have things to eat or drink he doesn't have comfort or safety he's been driven out it's more than just an internal trial expressed in poetic language he's not just having a bad day everything is going wrong for him and not only are things going wrong he's also cut off from the presence of god and and we may not share these exact same struggles we may not express them in the same words. But you guys are my friends, I talk to you. Sometimes I ask you how your day's going. And one of the things I love about the people of this church is that about half the time, not all the time, but about half the time, you don't just give that stock answer of ah, I'm doing all right, or hey, things are good. You know, you're honest with your language and, and when you reveal your honest language there, you'll, you'll show that your days are, are often not great. You use words like overwhelmed, exhausted, anxious, scattered, frustrated, hurting. That's how your days are going. And so we may not use the same words as the psalmist. We may not talk about our tears being our our only food, or we may not talk about uh, being like a panting deer, but we are in the exact same position as a psalmist, which is that we desperately need a savior. And not just a one-time savior from our unredeemed, unrepentant sin nature, but a daily savior from a world which wants to swallow us up and devour us, and from an enemy whose goal is to steal and kill and destroy every good thing. And even from ourselves, from the consequences of our bad choices and our lack of wisdom and just not choosing the right way. I want to step away from my notes just for a second here and say, I I didn't pick this psalm and I didn't pick this text because I'm like really amazing at dealing with anxiety and depression and struggles and frustrations and things. I'm not an expert on fixing those things. I'm an expert at needing this sermon that I'm preaching to you guys. So my authority doesn't come here this morning from all of the amazing, wise things that I'm going to say because I don't know what's in there. But my authority comes, if it comes from anywhere, from this book, from scripture. And I don't need to be good at this. I don't need to be good at dealing with my anxiety because I'm not. I don't need to be good at dealing with my depression because I'm not. All I need is the Bible. All we need is God, and we have him. So as we recognize our need for the Savior here, we may notice that God is silent. God doesn't make this active response or any sort of action here. Others may ask, where is your God? And this would be a really easy question to answer if God were easy to produce you could say, oh yeah, you remember those people sacrificing to Baal, and how they were working for like eight hours and nothing happened, and then I called down fire, and just like that, God produced a pillar of fire. Like, they wouldn't be asking, where is your God? They're asking that because they don't know where his God is, and the psalmist doesn't either. He doesn't have an answer. Where is your God? He even speaks in the past tense of how he used to lead people to the temple in worship. He used to take them out to those things, and he used to lead them in processions and festivals. He doesn't anymore. He even asks why God has forgotten him. And I think that's something that echoes in our hearts a lot. Why has God forgotten us? Why is he not answering the things that I want him to answer? Why is he not moving in the places where I'm hurting and frustrated and anxious and confused? The psalmist here feels cut off from the presence of God. And I I do think we can relate to that. But I also think it's worth remembering the perspective of who's writing this, actually. And this is a a, a Hebrew believer, an Israelite, a Jew. And in his time, he could be cut off from the presence of God. If he couldn't go to the temple, if he didn't have a priest, if he couldn't make sacrifices for his sins, he could be cut off in this way from the presence of God. But we're not in that same situation. So it's good to sympathize with him, and it's good sometimes to even take that feeling and apply it to ourselves in in the way that we do sometimes feel distant from God, but I think it's worth remembering and being encouraged that as much as he has faith here, we have even more than he had. Matthew Henry, um, I think we have a quote for this one as well, he has a great quote about this, and I like Matthew Henry, my mom likes Matthew Henry, and so I've always liked Matthew Henry, (laughs) nothing deeper than that, but Matthew Henry says this, he says, those are mistaken, who think that when they have robbed us of our Bibles and our ministers and our solemn assemblies, that they have robbed us of our God. For though God has tied us to them when they are to be had, he has not tied himself to them. We know where our God is and where to find him when we know not where his ark is nor where to find that. Wherever we are, there is a way open heavenward. I love that part right in the middle. He says, for though he has tied us to them when they are to be had, he has not tied himself to them. In this position of the psalmist, he could be cut off from the presence of God by not having the temple or the priest or the sacrifice to make his atonement. We do not have that situation. If we lose our Bibles, if we lose our fellowships, if we lose our pastors, if we lose our MCs and everything else, we still have God, no matter what. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. That's really in the third section, but I got real excited. So we'll get get back there again. So at the end of this first section here, we see the psalmist is vulnerable, exhausted, needy, thirsty, the victim of his soul, and he's even questioning his faith. He doesn't know where God is. He may not sound very faithful to us. But we're about to see this tone shift as we go into the second section, the second half of the psalm, and we'll see how his honesty here actually enables him to have greater faith. How he responds to his honest frustrations is is going to improve his faith here. So we continue on in verses 5 and 6 with our second theme, how we ought to respond when God does not readily act, speak, or comfort. He begins with a refrain, which we'll hear again at the end of the psalm. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I shall remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar." Uh, All that's worth mentioning about these lands that I know of is is that they are far removed from the house of God in Jerusalem. They're on the the edge, the edges of the kingdom, the borders in the wilderness. They're far away from the temple. And so he's saying here that even if I go out into the furthest wilderness, as far as I can get from the house of God, I will still remember you, O God. That word remember isn't like I forgot to do something that I remembered. Like, I forgot to feed the cat, but I remembered to feed the cat. I forgot about God, but oh, there's God. I remembered God. Not that kind of remembering. This is his way of saying he's calling up to the forefront of his memory. He's storing in the front of his mind the faithfulness of God, the things that God has done, and the nature of God's character. By doing this, he's taking an active step towards faithfulness. Well, notice that his feelings haven't changed. Nothing. His circumstances haven't changed either. His enemies have not stopped taunting him. He hasn't stopped being a a panting, thirsty deer, necessarily. And yet, he says, I will remember God. Even in these distant places, I'll still remember him. Charles Spurgeon, he he notes here that as the psalmist grounds himself in faith, the visible expressions of his despondency seem to vanish. We don't see him describing himself as a panting, thirsty deer. We see fewer exclamations of sorrow. And he says this, There is no solid foundation for comfort in such fickle frames as our heart is subject to. It is well to tell the Lord how we feel, and the more plain the confession, the better. We'll find it difficult to combat these doubts in our hearts, in our lives, if we're not bringing them to God honestly and clearly. And one of the things that the psalmist doesn't have here, or he doesn't mention at least, but another thing that we have is community we bring these things up, not just to ourselves and in our own hearts and before God, but to our, our friends and the people around us who are believers as well, they can speak into our lives as well. You guys speak into my lives, and have already done so several times this morning as I've been a nervous wreck. <laughs> Very grateful for that. So, page troubles. So we go on in verses seven and eight here, and we'll see him him sort of continuing down that stream of thought a little bit more here. He says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So from the very depths of his heart he's responding here. He acknowledges that all sovereignty in this trial that, that's happening to him is coming from God. That includes the breakers and the waves. We've sung that line before, and we're going to sing it again. But we have faith that if, if, if God is with us and God is commanding all these things, that those breakers and those waves are good for us. Sometimes those breakers and those waves are not God's way of saying that he has forgotten us. It's his way of sometimes saying that we have forgotten him. There's a, a quote here, and my MC is going to start laughing, because yes, it is from C.S. Lewis. But I think it's appropriate here. He says, if pleasure is God's whisper, then pain is his megaphone to a deaf world. Those breakers and those waves are good for us because God is the one commanding them. And so again, he's taking an active step towards faithfulness. He says, yes, these things are rough. They're really tough. I don't know how to deal with them, maybe. And yet I will choose to have faith in God. I will choose to say that these things are coming from God and that God cares in me. He takes that language really intimately here at the end of verse 8. When we read about those breakers and waves, I think the easy image is this Old Testament God of wrath. This idea that a lot of us grew up with. And I don't think that's necessarily the best image here. I don't think it's ever a good image, really. Because we see someone mighty but distant. Someone who's like a Poseidon-like figure who's commanding the waves and the oceans and the breakers and everything. And yet he doesn't really have time for us, like the petty concerns of humans. I think a different picture will help us here. I teach sixth grade, and so I have a student who, let me just paint you a picture of her real quick, she's about two and a half feet tall, has Rapunzel hair down past her waist, and when she talks, it's like like a little bird is chirping or something, funniest little kid. But when she comes into English class every single day, and I don't think she's even aware of this, she's just singing, or humming, or whistling, or something, and sometimes we have to like, you know, knock it off. (laughs) Trying to read a book here or something. You know, but I think that's just out of that deep outflowing of her pleasure of being in that class. And it's nothing I've done. She just loves English class. Out of that deep outflowing of pleasure, just song comes forth. And that's not me. That's not me at all. But that is clearly some people. And I think that's sometimes maybe how God is, too, towards us. Out of his deep pleasure at looking over us, especially when we choose that faithfulness in those situations... His heart just overflows with pleasure, and out of that overflow of pleasure, he says, at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I think God sings over us. Kind of cool. It's kind of weird. Maybe we don't know what to do with that. (laughs) I sure don't. So we get to verses 9 and 10, almost to the end here, and he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? So the psalmist here seems to be dictating a prayer for him to remember later on. He's telling us the words, but just modeling that for us. But he's also doing something else. He makes it clear that his physical circumstances haven't changed. His enemies are still taunting him. He's still down in the dumps. Nothing seems to be going right. He has a deadly wound in his bones. And they say, where is your God? And again, if this was an easy question to answer, he would just answer it and be done with it. But he can't. So I think our takeaway here is that our joy and our contentment in God can't be based on how good our days are going. It can't be based on our circumstances. They need to be based in something stronger. Something that will never change. Like God's character. And our memory of what God has already done for us. God may not step in and intervene in this specific situation, but he's already so many times, not just through Jesus' sacrifice, but in our own personal lives, we all have stories of things that God has done for us, ways that God has saved us and, and, and taken us out of those depths. So we'll see that from his response in the final verse, which concludes with our third theme. We'll take this a little bit past the end of the psalm, how we can trust in the care and ministrations of Christ on our behalf, even when he feels distant. The psalmist's hope is in God and in his character. He says in verse 11, But why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I want to look a little bit ahead here. Because the psalmist's story ends here with Psalm 42, but our story does not. The Israelites at this time were waiting for a savior. We've got him. And not just a savior, but a perfect high priest, a constant intercessor, and a true friend. Though the psalmist could be cut off from God's temple and his worship, we know that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can cut us off from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you take away one thing today, take away this. The patient Christian has every victory. We can wait the world out. Not that we necessarily always should, but at the end of the day, we know that nothing can touch us so long as we have God. That's unshakable. And no matter how much it feels like our worlds might be ending, and sometimes it really does feel that way, we have this hope that nothing can cut us off from God. We have total unhindered access to a God who will always hear us and never leave us. And even when we feel that he's silent, even when we feel that he's distant, even when we feel, whether because of our sin or our weakness or our woundedness, feel as though we can't approach Jesus, he will always hear us, always love us, and never leave us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for diving down into that deep murk. And, and grabbing us and tearing us out of it and, and seizing us as though we're some great treasure. Thank you for loving us in that way. Thank you for giving so much to us. Thank you that even in, when in moments like the psalmist here that we feel faithless, that we feel our doubts, when we don't have the answers to those questions, where is our God? that you're still there, that we have a more solid foundation than the evidence of our eyes and of our hearts, but that we know from our memories and from our knowledge of Scripture that you will never leave us and always love us. God, help us as we go out after this sermon. Help, help us not just to take these words for ourselves, but to give them out freely to a world that desperately needs them. God, we love you and thank you for all the good gifts that you give us. It's in your name we pray.